Have you ever seen the Denzel Washington movie, Man on Fire? You ever seen this movie? I hear, I hear, you know, learning about God through movies is a popular thing these days. And so, sorry, I couldn't help myself. But if you haven't seen the movie Man on Fire, Denzel Washington, who is an ex-CIA, former U.S. Marine Corps officer who specialized in reconnaissance. He's basically an assassin for the U.S. government ends up being hired to be the private bodyguard of a nine-year-old little girl named Peta, played by Dakota Fanning. Now, while the gig initially seemed pretty straightforward and honestly a bit beneath the skill set of our hero, things take a turn. The story develops when Peta is kidnapped and Denzel is seriously injured trying to save her. Now, I'm going to fast forward through a lot of really good stuff and essential plot development, but bear with me. To make a long story short, the dead drop of the ransom money goes bad, blows up. So the kidnappers threaten to kill this little girl, Peta, which prompts Denzel to take matters into his own hands. For the next hour and a half, This, quote, man on fire leaves behind a trail of death and carnage as he tracks down leads into who's ultimately responsible for this act against PETA, which includes brutally torturing and killing anyone with information, low-level criminals, syndicate crime bosses, corrupt police officers, dirty lawyers, Even Peter's own dad, who, spoiler alert, turns out was behind the whole kidnapping to collect on the insurance money. If you haven't seen it, sorry. It's been like a decade. (laughs) Now, initially, it might seem a bit peculiar, a little weird, that a man so relatively new to Peter's life would end up going to such great lengths Such a personal investment to save her. And yet, there's a scene right before the action commences that kind of provides a little insight into his core motivation. And instead of me describing it, we're going to show a little clip from Man on Fire. I keep thinking if only we hadn't. Just like how my whole life, all I've ever thought about is what I could get for myself. My own baby. She needed me so much, and sometimes 
I felt like I had nothing to give her. Just, uh, I don't know what to do. What are you gonna do? What I do best. I'm gonna kill him. Anyone I was involved, anybody who profited from it, anybody who opens their eyes at me. It's a classic line. What are you going to do? I'm going to kill them all. <laughs> anyone involved? Anyone who profited? Anyone who looks at me? <laughs> I mean, he's like, he's going to kill them all. And then from that point forward, he really does kill everyone. <laughs> now understand, the reason that Denzel Washington's character in this movie initially takes a bullet to defend PETA and then becomes, after the fact, this man on fire and an attempt to rescue her is because of this. And you got a little taste of it, a little glimpse. His relationship with this little girl had effectively saved his life. You see, when Denzel's character first took the job, he was an alcoholic, suffering from extreme depression and severe guilt over what? Over the mistakes of his former life. And while he was at first resistant to Peta's attempts to strike up a friendship, by the time that she's kidnapped, this little girl's unusual kindness, her grace, had unquestionably won him over. Her love, this is important, her love, had freed his character from the very things that had been destroying him, their relationship filled his life with meaning and purpose. Denzel is so grateful for the impact of her kindness that by the end of the movie, he's even willing to lay down his life if it meant saving hers. Now, as you read Galatians, you need to keep in mind that the Apostle Paul is equally a man on fire. And why? He's just received a report while in Athens or Corinth that the gospel message, the very message that had freed him from his former life, the very gospel that had liberated him from the guilt of past mistakes, the very gospel that had filled his life with meaning and purpose, you might say his PETA had been abducted, had been hijacked by a group of false teachers who were now peddling an anti-gospel of grace and do these things, grace but don't do these things, or grace so I can do anything. Paul is so struck. He's so alarmed. He's angry by what's taking place. So much so that upon hearing word, he immediately moves into action. Bow, 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 bow. 
He's arming himself. And he writes this letter to the churches in Galatia with the specific intention of rescuing Grace from her captors, defending her from the clutches of those seeking to take advantage. As mentioned last Sunday, I think my favorite title of the book of Galatians is that it's Paul's fighting epistle. And why? He has something to fight for. And note, because of the urgency of the situation, Paul, as we noted last Sunday, skips a customary greeting. He cuts out all formalities. He's not there to make friends or present platitudes. I mean, he gets right to the point. Chapter 1, verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And now he continues with verse eight. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let that person, let him be accursed. As we have said before, I will say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Can't you hear Paul's intensity, right? His passion. Paul, right from the beginning, I marvel, and then he starts launching verbal hand grenades with pen and parchment. I mean, consider the fact that Paul is so strong, so fierce in his defense of the gospel message that he has no problems at all right from the beginning saying that anyone who would dare preach another gospel should be accursed. That word accursed is literally to be anathema, eternally damned to hell. That's strong. I mean, there is no questioning Paul's seriousness, the seriousness by which he saw the situation. There's no questioning the seriousness of what he saw taking place in Galatia, this distorting and perverting of the gospel of God's amazing grace. It riled him up. It's why, for emphasis, just to be clear, he repeats himself. In case you think I misspoke or that I wasn't clear, if anyone preached this gospel, let him be accursed. And here's why Paul was so incensed. Basing God's favor on anything other than his grace alone is to say, that the precious blood spilt by Jesus on the cross of Calvary is simply not good enough, that his sacrifice isn't sufficient, that something should be added to it. It's a damnable proposition. Now, before we continue, I want to make three observations about what Paul's saying. First, be careful who you allow to, quote, preach to you. The sad reality is just because someone is ordained, went to seminary, 
wears a funky collar, has a degree on the wall, or a title in front of their name. Just because someone stands behind a pulpit, claims to be a Christian, claims to teach the gospel, does not guarantee they're actually presenting the gospel. Paul's point here is very clear. Since this issue of grace, period, grace alone, grace enough, had been settled and was a foundational and essential component to the gospel message, anyone who was presenting a contrary message, one of grace and or grace but or grace so, anyone presenting anything other than grace, period, even if it were an angel from heaven, needed to be resisted and actively rejected. It's interesting to note that Paul even warns that if we, includes himself, were to preach another gospel, reject us. You know, the sad reality, I think Paul understood it, is that even those who at one point understand the gospel of grace, period, can so very quickly slip into the trappings of what the flesh craves. Involvement, a role, pride, or ego. Secondly, and this might be a little controversial, but so be it. It's okay to call out a person's theology when the issue at hand concerns the true nature of the gospel. There are a lot of topics when it comes to Christianity that we can debate and we can have differences and we can love each other and agree to disagree and rock and roll. But there's one we can't. And that is the issue of grace. It's so foundational, so essential that we can't have fellowship over a disagreement here. Paul is okay with calling them out. But keep in mind that he's not calling them out to be mean. You know, that, that he's, you know, in some ways being a jerk. Paul is calling them out, and here's why. What these false teachers were peddling to the people was in effect minimizing the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work on the cross, which is why we must call out any perversion or distortion of grace. Aside from the obvious, let me explain why our man on fire goes right for the jugular, right after these false teachers, and the way that he does. It's because a distorted theology of grace will prove detrimental to a person's walk with God. I hope you understand that. It's why maintaining grace alone is so vital. If it's a distorted or a perverted gospel of grace, it yields a distorted walk in the life of the Christian under the teaching. It's as though you broke a leg and the brace that's put on it is crooked. It's distorted. What will happen? There will be a limp. The walk will be impaired. The walk will be affected. 
It's why you have to call these people to account because of the results of those sitting under the doctrine. Understand, because a person's theological positions drive their personal behaviors, which in turn produce lasting consequences, proper theology when it comes to grace matters greatly. Correct theology ensures healthy Christians. Finally, there's a third observation. Paul says, what we have preached to you, speaking of the true gospel, Paul, he is in this instance affirming something I think important, fascinating, essential to the development of, of the book. And what he's affirming is that this doctrinal position The gospel of grace alone, grace period, was not unique to him. It was not unique only to his ministry, but it it was something universally taught and universally accepted by the early church fathers. As we noted in our first study, the issue had been settled at the first Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Paul says, not the gospel that I preach, but the one that we have been preaching to you. If there's anything that contradicts that... He's not alone in this position. He connects himself with the universal thought process and teaching the doctrine accepted by the church. Verse 10, he continues, For I, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. This is an interesting verse because it seems as though Paul is addressing an accusation that these false teachers were using to explain why Paul had only presented to them an incomplete gospel. Basically, the Jews that had come preaching this distorted gospel, they claimed that Paul preached grace, period, because it was more palpable to Gentile people. That Paul left out the real gospel, the real story, the complete picture, because Paul knew that, well, if he gave them the whole truth, he wouldn't be as successful. I mean, be honest. Preaching, follow Jesus and be circumcised, there's a real drawback to that. Like, that doesn't float as well as grace alone, grace period. And so the accusation being levied is that Paul was a man pleaser. He he wanted a big following. He wanted a result, over-presenting the full story. (laughs) Paul now, what's he doing? He's pointing to the reality that he's just damned to hell, those who are distorting the theology of grace, as evidence that he wasn't exactly a man-pleaser and that this accusation was instead unfounded. Notice, though, that Paul says, I find this interesting, quote, for if I still pleased men, First note that this word pleased in the Greek, it means to accommodate oneself to the opinions, desires, and interests of another. And the implication is that Paul is saying, there was a time in my life that I did seek to please men. And yet, now what does Paul declare? (laughs) I I don't have that ambition anymore. My whole life is about being a bondservant of Christ. This word bondservant in the Greek, it's doulos. It refers to a slave 
of freedom. A, a slave who's voluntarily given himself over to another's will. Like Paul was not a slave of Christ by force of will. He's not a bondservant because he has to be one. He's not a bondservant to pay off a debt. Man, Jesus has done so much for me, so I serve him to give back. No, 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 no. Like, Jesus asked nothing in return. There was a no-strings-attached proposition to the cross. It was unconditional love. No, Paul was not a slave of Christ by force of will or to pay a debt or to make some type of restitution for the sins and the crimes of the past. Paul didn't serve Jesus because he had to. Paul was a slave because he wanted to. It was by freedom. He was a love slave. He served Jesus because he really wanted to serve no one else. I want to make another observation here before we continue. It's impossible, friend, to please men if your desire, if your main interest is serving God. Like, you should embrace that reality. And on the flip side, it's impossible to truly serve God if your main focus is on pleasing men. Jesus, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, he said, no one, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Bob Dylan had it right. Everybody's got to serve somebody. It's the truth. That, that was a reference for the older crowd. I, you know, I'm trying to get everybody where they are. Verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we noted in our prologue to Galatians, in order to undermine Paul's message of grace, period, these false teachers first focused on undermining the man himself. And it's a, it's a worthwhile strategy. I mean, it's an effective strategy. They questioned his apostleship, his authority, his backstory, his motivations, and they did this all to discredit his message that he was not trustworthy. And while Paul has already, in just the few verses we've looked at, defended the essence of his apostolic authority. Galatians 1 verse 1, Paul says that he was an apostle, not from men. He wasn't sent by man, nor through man, or an institution. But he was an apostle because Jesus called and commissioned and sent him. He's also, as we've looked at, made mention that the message of the gospel, what Paul had been preaching, what he taught was in line with the accepted doctrine of the church. He wasn't presenting anything new. The other apostles had been preaching the same thing. Galatians 1.8, we saw it. What we have been preaching to you. But Paul now, in this instance, he's seeking to explain to the Galatians how it was that he had received this gospel of grace. I mean, it makes sense why the other apostles might have, right? Peter and James and John, you know? They had been with Jesus. For three years, they had sat under his teaching ministry. After the resurrection, Jesus had appeared to them. 
It was the story. The early church, that Jerusalem church, man, over 500 of them had seen the resurrected Jesus, and we're told that over those 40 days, he taught them, no doubt, this gospel. It was easy to understand why they might have had it because they had received it from Jesus. But the question, what was convoluted, is how was it that, that Paul, who had not been a disciple of Jesus, who had not been there post-resurrection, how did he receive the gospel? And he answers, Paul says that the origin of the gospel message had come to him not according to man, which you could, you could call inspiration, nor had he received it from man or discovery. He, he hadn't been taught it, but it came to him through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, in effect, that this doctrine of grace period. It had not originated in his mind. It wasn't something he came up with on his own, nor was it something that had been taught to him, which is interesting. No one had taught Paul this gospel. Instead, Paul affirms that this gospel message of grace, period, the same message that the other apostles were teaching, had been revealed to him. By whom? By Jesus which is interesting, and, and, and in all honesty makes sense and is entirely logical. Think about it this way. How could anyone truly know or be as audacious to claim grace, period, apart from God himself? Like you can understand why, why men might create a grace and do these things or a grace but don't do these things or a grace so you can do anything kind of proposition but like to, for a man to say, you know what, we don't have to do anything, God's just giving it freely. For a man to come up with that, no, 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 no. Paul's making it clear, like, this is so radical, it's so revolutionary. If a man presented it, you should question it. But it wasn't presented by just a man. It was given to us by God. By God. You know, the reality is that I can say grace and I can say grace but, and I can say grace so. And in doing that, I can give God a measure of credit. I can give him his due, his props, but I can still remain in control. But if God says grace, period, the power in that statement rests solely in Jesus. And you know what it yields? It yields this result. There is no room for you or I to have control if it's grace and grace alone. So Paul explains here how he had received the gospel of grace, but now he explains how receiving that gospel had had such a, a radical effect, a change on his life. Really, he explains why he's as passionate as he is, why he's this man on fire and the gospel's defense, verse 13, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul's explaining this former life, this former conduct in Judaism by saying that he advanced beyond many of his contemporaries. He was, he was the cream of the crop because he was more exceedingly zealous for the traditions, for his studies, for the law. 
To this point, Paul would would later describe himself in Philippians 3 verse 5 as being, quote, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Aside from this, we also know, uh, according to Paul himself, that he was the son of a Pharisee, Acts 23, 6. And in his own words in Acts 22, Paul says that he was brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of a very famous rabbi by the name of Gamaliel taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and that he was zealous towards God. But by the end of his educational uh, 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 season, his studies, Paul, when he became of age, was a Pharisee himself and likely member of uh, the most influential uh, group of, of Jewish religious scholars, a group known as the Sanhedrin. Though Paul's mentor, Gamaliel, had urged the Jews take a passive approach towards the followers of Jesus, who at the time were simply called the way. They weren't called Christians. And you can read of this in Acts chapter 5. Paul, Paul broke from his mentor. Paul had a fundamental disagreement. You see, in his zealousness to defend Judaism, Paul had personally instigated, if you don't know the story, a persecution of the church, quote, beyond measure, He had the specific intention of, quote, trying to destroy it. In Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is taken outside of the city city and stoned to death, we're told that the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is our very Paul. Then just a few verses later in Acts 8, we read that Paul was so visceral towards the church of Jesus that he was, quote, consenting to his death and making havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Even after a year on the march in Acts 9, as it opens, Paul was, quote, still breathing threats and murders. He was like a ravenous dog against the disciples of Jesus. And why did Paul do this? Well, the sad tale, according to his own words in both Acts 22 and later in 26, Paul justified his murderous deeds as being spawned by, quote, zealousness towards God. He was a a religious zealot. He held a deep conviction that, quote, he must do things contrary to the name of Jesus. Understand, Paul wanted to destroy Christianity for one simple reason. The very concept, the very idea, the very notion that salvation and sanctification were a work of God by grace, period, was an affront, an offense to his religious system, his religious pride. And yet here's the irony about what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying that in his zeal to defend the law of God, he's admitting that he had in turn become a violator of the law. I was so passionate for the law. I was so passionate in my defense. I was so passionate for the things of God. I disobeyed it all. You know, one of the big ten, you shouldn't murder. And yet Paul was doing just that. You see, in writing to the Galatians, this passage, it's as though Paul is saying, you know, it's no secret, my former life in Judaism. You know what that life was all about. 
You know who I was and what I was doing. Many of you still bear the scars of such actions. And yet, what did my devotion to the law actually produce? Paul says, I ended up being an enemy of God, and I was killing people in the process. You know, that's exactly what religion does. This system of morality, religion, it it makes us an enemy of God, and we end up killing people in the process. Since religion creates a false perception of one's moral standing before God, religion warps how a person not only sees themselves, but how they interact with their fellow man. You know, the irony of living in in the Bible belt is that people have a false sense of security. Their religion, how are you going to heaven? I ask this question to people all the time and almost universally, here's the answer, I'm a good person. That's the deceit of religion because you're not. You're not. You're not a good person. I don't care what you do, how moral you think you are. Religion creates a false sense. It warps how you see yourself. I'm good, I'm fine. And then it also warps how you interact with fellow man. You know, it's, have you found, I don't, I don't really want to step on your toes, but I might. Religious people are such a drag. Like, they're the lamest people to hang out with. Just being frank. Like, the more religious you're known as, the less likely it is any human being wants to hang out with you. It's like, hey, we're going we're gonna to have a party. We're going to have some fun. Hey, why don't you invite so-and-so? Oh, dude, they're super religious, you know? I mean, they have something stuck up you know where. They're no fun to hang around, no fun to chill with. They're, they're, don't invite them. Like seriously, religious people have that reputation of being killjoys. Everybody's having a good time until the Pharisee walks into the room. And then it's like, dude, don't invite the Pharisee. Like invite everybody else, but leave him out. You know, one of the reasons that religious people are such a drag to hang around. I, I found this to be true. Maybe you'll relate. Is that aren't religious people just such a bummer because they're often hyper aware of your shortcomings and yet completely unaware of their own? Who wants to hang out with that kind of person? You. <laughs> And you're just looking at that person like, do you not own a mirror? (laughs) Like, seriously. Like, you're so depressing. Because you're all the time telling me how bad I am. I'm already aware of it. And how good you are. And you're unaware that you're just as bad as me. This is a problem. You know, there's a reason that this happens. You see, when a person embraces religion... And the word religion, if you don't know, it it literally means tethering. It's how we're tethered to God. Religion. 
When a person embraces religion by adopting this distorted grace, grace and or grace but, this moral structure as the basis of how they earn and maintain God's favor, you know what that person does by default? They hold everyone else to the same moral standard. And then they judge everyone accordingly. If I find my favor in the maintenance of God's favor based in the idea of its grace and you need to do these things or grace, but don't do these things, I hold every person I know to the same moral structure. It's not grace, period. It's grace and do the things that I'm doing or grace, but don't do the things that I'm not doing. I compare myself. You see, religion Things to do and things to refrain from doing provides a religious person a mechanism by which they can maintain their own sense of moral superiority and right standing with God by highlighting, comparing, and condemning the failures of everyone else. I feel better about my standing before God because you are pretty messed up. I might not be perfect, you know, but I'm better than you. And how am I better than you? Well, I do all these things for God that you're not doing. And I'm earning more of God's favor. I'm showing myself worthy because I refrain from doing these things that you do. I look at you. You know, that's what religion does. It makes us look at each other instead of looking at Jesus. Looking at Jesus changes it all. Religious people. <laughs> this is why they have this reputation of being mean and judgmental, unkind, spiteful, stuck up. Ironically, the opposite of Jesus. You know, it's been said, the worst thing about religion is religious people. I'd add by pointing out that the worst thing about religious people is religion. <laughs> Anne Graham Lotz, uh, the granddaughter, a daughter of Billy Graham. She said this, it's so sad. She said that it has been religious people, often within organized church, who have been the most critical of and even hostile to my relationship with God. And can't you relate? Can't you? However, if a person rejects religion and instead embraces their standing before God as being through his grace, period, something happens. You know, you no longer at that point have the basis to judge anyone else, your fellow man, or to see yourselves as being morally superior. Why? Because you have no role. God's favor is both given and maintained independent of your involvement. So you can't judge anyone else. Think, think about it this way. If you're climbing the religious moral ladder to God, it's entirely possible for you to judge everyone below you because you're higher up. But in contrast, it's really, really, really hard, I'd say impossible, to be judgmental or to have a sense of moral superiority if you find yourself on your knees at the foot of a cross. There, there's no moral superiority when there's Jesus hanging on that tree and all of us on our knees. How can you judge your fellow man because it was just as much your sin as theirs that nailed him to that tree. It's not religion, it's Jesus. Because religion leads to self-righteousness as opposed 
to the sole sufficiency of his righteousness. As Pastor Joe Foch rightly said, religion makes us the enemy of grace. And this is what was happening in Galatia. Paul, his religious zeal, his grace and and grace but moral structure had only served, and this is his point, to blind him to the reality that while he thought he was pleasing God, he was in actuality opposing God and in turn persecuting the people of God and whom God loved, the results of religion. I love the way that Paul opens up his testimony here. He describes this whole season of his life as being, quote, his former conduct. Did you notice that? Some of your translations might even might even present it, I think in, in probably the more clear way, as it being his former life. Like, don't miss the subtleness of what Paul's saying. The gospel message of grace, period. God's favor by grace, the maintenance of that favor and grace, that message was so powerful, it was able to take, in a moment, his present life and transform it into a former one. Let me say that again. The gospel message was so powerful, it was able to take his present life and transform it in a moment into being a former one. Do you realize that the gospel of grace, period, is powerful enough to change your life, to make the life that you came into this sanctuary with a former one? Consider, and this is kind of Paul's point, if God's amazing grace was able to transform the life of a man like Paul, a man who was religiously prideful, zealous, a man who was violent or angry, a man vindictive, and lonely. If the gospel was able to transform his life, what Paul's doing is he's removing your excuses. Because if the gospel was powerful enough to change him, then it can change you. That this morning, your present life can be a former one. I want to make a concluding observation about Paul's story here. Kind of roll with me. Because this is, I think, a very important concept. It was not the concept of grace, period, that changed Paul's life. It was not the concept. Scripture seems to support the belief that before encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul rightly understood the doctrine of grace, period. It's why, in his religious zeal, he was so hostile to it. No. Look back at Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, because because I think there's a a clue here as to what Paul's actually saying changed his life. I'm going to emphasize a section as we read through it, because Paul likes run-on sentences and trains of thought. He's ADD, but go with me. He says, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel, what's the gospel? The good news of grace bestowed when Jesus atoned which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Connect them. The gospel came how? Through the revelation of Jesus Christ. What changed Paul's life, his present life in Judaism into being a former one? 
was not knowing more about God's grace. What changed Paul's life was the moment he experienced God's grace. How? Through the revelation, the revealing of Jesus to him. You know, in much the same way that Denzel's life had been transformed through the relationship he had with PETA, what changed Paul's life was not a concept. It was not a concept. What changed his life was a relationship. Paul is telling these Galatians that his life forever changed the moment he encountered Jesus. The moment Jesus, the Son of God, revealed himself to him. You know, when we talk about grace, it's so easy for us to speak in platitudes so often that we end up fully failing to understand what's being communicated. Communicated. Understand this. While God's love sent Jesus to atone for our sins on the cross, his grace, God's unmerited favor, is now the mechanism that now affords each one of us the opportunity to both know and have a relationship with his son, Jesus. Jesus' love died for our sins, but God's grace gives us an opportunity to know and relate with Jesus. God's grace allows the relationship. Think about it like this. Let me kind of break it down in a way we can, we can wrap our brains around. How does a person receive God's grace? Simple. You receive God's grace when you enter into a relationship with Jesus. Because you couldn't have it apart from it. How does now a person grow in grace? We, we use that, grow in grace. How do you grow in grace? Your relationship with de Jesus deepens. It starts and then it deepens. How is a person transformed by God's grace? Their relationship with Jesus begins to rub off. It naturally changes a person's desires and impacts their behaviors. In regards to this section of scripture, it had been God's grace, not known, but experienced by Paul, and that he could now have a relationship with Jesus. It was that that had freed him from his former life. It was that that had liberated him from the guilt of his past mistakes. It was that that filled his life with meaning and purpose. Not grace as a concept, but grace as an experience by hanging out and knowing Jesus. This is why in writing to Galatians, Paul is a man on fire. Not only because he knew firsthand that religion fails to change a life, but that in peddling a gospel distortion, these false teachers were saying a relationship with Jesus born from God's grace was not enough. How dare them? It's to this point Paul steps up and he boldly declares, to hell no. Our favor with God is not based in religion. Our favor with God is based solely in a relationship with Jesus. Romans 6, verse 14, we're told, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? For you are not under law, but under grace. That you are an outlaw. Sadly, there are many of you this morning who have never actually experienced the power of grace. Because while you've, quote, known about grace, You've never known 
grace. You know about it, but you've never experienced it. Paul's life was forever changed the day he met grace on the road to to Damascus. Jesus. And you know, his life continued to change every single day he walked with grace. His Savior, Jesus. Friend, grace is more than an idea to know, which is important. Grace is a relationship to be experienced. No grace. Experience grace by knowing Jesus.